0: Good morning again. I want to ask you guys to continually uh, be in prayer. This weekend is our uh, men's retreat out at Sandy Creek Bible Camp uh, near the Brenham area. The guys should be kind of packing up to head home. Um, I had a great time out with the guys coming home yesterday uh, when they started the skeet shooting. I decided it was a good time to exit. And so uh, I'm here, no worse for wear, but... Uh, I want to ask you to be in prayer, particularly the challenge that the men have received is to be men of impact and to be focused and intentional about the legacy that we leave. And so uh, we've challenged the men this morning really with some particular things. Uh, Carl Carr spoke to them. And so if your husband is there, I want to really ask you ladies to be in prayer for him and to be receptive as he may come home with a commitment to respond faithfully to God and do some things a little different, and so I want to just encourage you with that uh, before we get started, guys. As we were singing, it hit me in the first service, and, and I, I don't, um, it didn't lessen in the second as we sang about the glory of Jesus being risen and exalted and forever glorified. And and one of the things that struck me as we were singing that, my heart just kind of went to the book of Colossians, to Colossians chapter 1. And this isn't officially part of the sermon. It's not in the notes. It's just something I feel like as we sang, the Spirit of God just kind of brought to mind. And I wanted to share that with you this morning. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, if you will, if you have your Bible with you. We're going to just read a section. And here's what I want to challenge you with. Churches like ours, kind of from our little corner of the Christian tradition, have a tendency to do something. And a lot of times it's very helpful. We have a tendency to take the Bible and to open it and, and to study it with rigor. Um, we we check the cross-references and figure out what it means and we dissect it and sort through it. And that's really helpful a lot of the time. It gives us greater clarity as to what the Lord's commands are. It gives us greater insight and it helps us develop sound doctrine and understand right teaching but sometimes there's some there are moments that it doesn't serve us there are moments that that sometimes we just we just need to read god's word and let them wash over us and soak that in and, and i imagine what it might have been like as as the first hearers of what we're about to read in colossians heard it this is a letter from paul to the church i imagine that the letter came uh, we have a sense of of who carried it a man named Onesimus probably brought the letter, delivered it by hand to the leaders of the church, and, and quickly, kind of through the grapevine, the, the story then got spread that we had a word from Paul that, that our apostle had sent us a message from God. And and so probably that night, they all gathered in a living room with some candles to hear from God. And, and they just opened this scroll letter and read it, and the people just heard God's word. I'm sure later on they started to dig into it, to figure out exactly what what God wanted them to do. But at that moment, they just kind of let it come. And that's what I want you to do this morning. I want to challenge you just to listen to these words from Colossians 1 and not ask any questions of it. Not try to answer it or figure it out for the moment, just to let it just wash over you and just enjoy it. So Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 we're going to jump into similar text and we'll answer and ask questions but right now can we just just let this come? In verse 15 speaking of the preeminence of Jesus it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. all things were created, through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And I want you to just let that settle. That Jesus is the very Son of God, the exact representation of His image. says the fullness of God dwelled in him in bodily form and he went to the cross for us. And he died on a cruel cross for our sin in our place and he rose again, the firstborn of many who will come and enjoy the glory of God. And that's what Jesus has done for us. So, so we're going we're gonna to dig in to the book of Hebrews today. We're going to read a, what I consider to be a parallel passage and, and dig into the glory of Jesus and ask and answer some questions. But But as we do that, I want kind of the disposition of our hearts as we approach Scripture is simply to enjoy what we're about to hear and to celebrate it. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into Hebrews this morning. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, we thank you that your Son, who created all things, who is the rightful heir of all glory, power, and authority, That he took on flesh for us and he died in our place. We thank you that he loves us with an unfathomable love. We thank you that because of your power he rose again and gave us hope for victory over sin and death and the joy of eternity with you. Father, we pray that he wouldn't just be preeminent in all things in a general sense today, but that he'd be preeminent in our hearts, that he'd be first of greatest joy and priority and that in seeking him we would find hope for the future and you would draw us near to you in jesus name amen so last week we started our series jesus is better and we started in hebrews chapter one we just looked at the first four verses and in that we saw something important We saw something unique about how communication works, that that ultimately when you communicate something to someone, you have to consider who they are. It's what we call audience adaptation in communication studies. You want to say something to someone, you have to think about what their experiences are, what they understand to be true, where they begin, so that we can start and then go from there. And you're going to see the uniqueness of the audience as you read the book of Hebrews even today. Because this is written to a Jewish audience, people who knew their Old Testaments. And so when what we read today, Paul goes through this Old Testament quotathon for a section, talking about the power and preeminence of Jesus. Beyond simply a question of, of how we communicate is the channel that we communicate through. You see, in many ways, the form or the media dictates the message and how it's received. Some of the young couples in our church know what it's like to get to call your mom and dad and tell them we're having a baby. And that's exciting news and they've just heard that and and there's a celebration. And so in one sense to communicate to mom and dad we're having a baby. is cause for great joy. But when mom and dad discover that their children are expecting over Facebook now what was cause for celebration is now an offense The message is the same. The format, the media is different. And because of that, it's received differently. Now, this is more than just something simple about a message. There's also the understanding that the messenger is important. Who it is that communicates on our behalf is incredibly important if someone else carries a message for us. If today any one of us were made president, we would have to make some decisions around foreign policy. One of the most important ones is choosing who your ambassadors will be. Because they speak for you. They don't just deliver a message. They communicate more than the words. People who study communication estimate that 80% of communication is nonverbal. It's also estimated that 70% of statistics are made up. So... um I don't know how you would quantify that. I would tell you this, that there's a whole lot of communication that goes beyond the words that we say. It can be facial expressions, hand gestures, nonverbal cues, even spacing and commas and pauses. So I could say, wow, that was great. Or I could say, wow, that was great. And those mean different things and they're received differently. Because more than just the words... Is the way that they're said and by whom they are sent. What we saw last week in Hebrews 1 through 4 was that in Jesus, God was communicating something with more power and clarity than the prophets ever could. I want you to read Hebrews 1 1 through 4 with me again. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through him, through whom also he created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and if he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he inherited is more excellent than theirs. These first four verses of Hebrews tell us something. They, they tell us that the message communicated through Jesus coming to earth was a more powerful communication of God's message than anything we had seen before. See, the prophets in the past had accurately communicated the words of God perfectly describing His nature and character. Jesus came not as a communication of the Word of God, but as the Word of God, as a perfect embodiment of His nature and character. And so where the Scriptures rightly describe something, Jesus rightly demonstrated it. The Bible tells us that God is holy and loving and just, and Jesus showed us what it is like to be holy, loving, and just, all wrapped up in one person. And Jesus is as if God took a megaphone to shout His word to creation. And because of that, it's a clearer, more compelling communication of God's word. In the past, He spoke through the prophets, and today, He has spoken through His Son. And you see what you saw in Colossians here, that Jesus is greater and better. The Scriptures will continue in verse 5 and begin to describe for us how Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, we'll talk in a moment why it is that Paul would make such a point to address this issue in a moment. But I want you to see for a moment as we read through these next section of Scriptures to think about what we just heard about Jesus in verses 1 through 4. And look for these parallels as we describe Jesus in verses 5 through 13. So he says, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels worship winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So we jump into this. I want you to see the parallels between what we just read in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and what we heard in verses 5 through 13. In verse 2, we find Jesus as the royal heir of all things, the only Son of God. And in verses 5 and 6, that's resonated again, that He's the firstborn. The God for Him is a Father, and today He had begotten Him. We find in verse Two, that He's the creator of all things. And in verse 10, it resounds again that He laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and that the heavens are the work of His hands. In verse 3, we find that Jesus is the eternal Son of God and divine in nature. And in verses 11 through 12, we hear that He is eternally existent and that He will roll up the skies like a scroll, but He will have no end. In verse 3, we see that He was exalted to the right hand of the Majesty on high, having made forgiveness and payment for our sins. And in verse 13, we hear again that He is to sit at the right hand of the Father until His enemies are made into His footstool. And I think this is important because what... The scriptures are laying out. is one thing in particular, but it's much broader when you think about it. In particular, the scriptures are telling us that Jesus is better than the angels, which may sound like something that's odd to us. We don't have a lot of conversations about the angels, and they don't generally compete in our minds as Christians for priority with jesus but i want to go beyond that because the description that the scriptures just gave of jesus don't just make the case that he's better than the angels they make the case that he's simply better that whatever it is is on the other side of the equation with jesus that jesus is is better because he's the creator of all things He's a sustainer of all things. He's the exact representation of the glory of God. He's exalted to the right hand of God. He's the one who provides salvation. So whatever is on the flip side of the equation with Jesus is simply not good enough. So we're going to talk in particular about angels and why that's brought up in a moment. But before we do that, I want you to just think through this. Jesus is better, period, full stop. We saw last week in Jeremiah chapter 2 where, where Jeremiah on behalf of God confronts the people and he confronts them saying this is that you've committed two great evils against me. You've rejected me as the fountain of living water and you've gone and you've dug out broken cisterns that cannot satisfy you. And, and we do that. That's how sin works. We go and we pursue Things to satisfy and fill us. To give us meaning, identity, and purpose outside of God. And we do that in different ways. For some people it's going to be obviously sinful, worldly pursuits. And things like sex, comfort, substances. For others it's going to be in more subtle ways and religious duty and practice. Even to the point that people for their religion are strapping on bombs and killing people. Believing somehow that this twisted act of devotion is going to do something for them before a holy God. You see, we can seek for joy and we can dig our wells in the world and its obvious passions, or we can dig wells in religious activity, but in the end, they're broken. They're broken. And what we're passing up is this fountain of inexhaustible joy. This living water that Jesus will, in His life, when meeting a woman at a well, tell her that only He can give. And the Scriptures will resound again to tell us that He is simply better. Jesus is better than any pleasure that com- or comfort we can get from this world and any joy or sense of self-righteousness we can get from religion jesus is better than religious devotion he's better than sexual enjoyment jesus is better than bacon jesus simply better so we've got to begin from that proposition and move then into the discussion why is jesus better than the angels and why does that matter well verse 14 tells us a little bit about why jesus is better than the angels He says, of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? We don't really know a lot about angels, to be fair. There's a lot of ideas that float around. Truthfully, the Bible just doesn't give us a whole lot of data that we can put together. But we know a few things. We know obviously here that they are servants, that they are spirits who serve and minister on behalf of God to the benefit of those who are to receive salvation. What do we know beyond that? Well, I I can tell you what we don't know, or what we know to not be true. Sometimes that's easier than saying what we know to be true. We know for sure that the popular depictions of angels are inaccurate biblically. We know... For certain. And there's kind of two popular depictions of angels. The first is um, a really chubby baby with very small wings. That's one. I've always been surprised at the ratio of wing to baby size, by the way. It appears to me that those are not substantial enough to lift that chubby baby. The other one that comes out at Christmas time, he may be in your attic right now, or she probably more appropriately looks like a a quite attractive Scandinavian woman. And we put her on the top of our tree and she has lights in her hair. Now here's the problem with these views of angels. Um, There's a, a simple litmus test whether or not that is accurate. It is this. The first words of almost every interaction that angels have with people in the Bible is the angel saying two words, fear not. Almost every interaction that an angel has with people begins with the angel assuring them that it's okay and they shouldn't be afraid. Now, I want you to understand why that is. Angels repeatedly tell people, fear not when they meet them, because angels are scary. That's why people are afraid when they meet them. That doesn't mean they look ghoulish. It just means that their power, authority, there's something about them that says, I should be afraid. What we know from the scripture about angels is that they are warriors at times and that they are messengers for God. The, The Greek word angel literally means messenger. So they deliver messages from God and what we find here in verse 14 is that the message that they deliver is to serve those who are to inherit salvation. Now, the question, why would the Scriptures go to great length and quote like seven Old Testament passages to prove that Jesus is better than the angels? Why are we having this conversation? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 does a good job of answering that for us. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. will so why are we having this conversation about the angels and jesus being supreme to them i tell you the first is is this and it's kind of obvious and maybe a little odd to us is that some people were apparently making too much of the angels In their minds about how things worked with God, how prayers were answered, how God moved in their lives. They had put angels at a place of prominence that they didn't deserve to be. And sometimes we'll see this. People will pray to Michael the archangel at times and they'll ask him for help. Um, The problem with that is that because of the work of God and the power of the Spirit in us, we have a direct line before the throne of God. So when I call the customer service department, well, first, I'm not calling the 800 number if the CEO is my father. So I don't want to talk to somebody less than the person I have direct access to. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, the Bible tells us there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We don't pray to angels or saints or anyone else to ask them for favor we go straight to jesus the one who has all power and authority because he's delighted to hear our prayer and by the work of jesus and the power of spirit we can enter the throne of the father with confidence we don't need to ask lesser people for favors i think that's a bit of a side issue though I think the primary issue that we're seeing is that in describing the authority and priority of the messenger, he's elevating the message that was sent. So if we send a message that is of very little meaning or significance, we, it doesn't really matter who delivers it. But the most important messages, the most significant messages, we deliver in person. And what we see here in Hebrews chapter 2 is the gospel message being elevated. That it's importance being magnified. And you find that in this phrase. So we must pay closer attention here. That, that if God proved to be reliable when speaking through angels, through a mediator, how much more should we trust His word when He speaks to us directly through His Son? We say this, this is not to diminish in any way the words of Scripture previous to that, but to point out that that what was going on in Jesus and His life, death, and resurrection was the core of what it meant to walk with God. You see, you, you can believe a number of things from the Scriptures to be true, but if you don't believe that Jesus is the only Son of God who died for us and rose again, you're simply not God's child. You're a person who has affirmed some of the things He said. And only God's children are welcomed into heaven. So the message of Jesus that was proclaimed by the Lord of what He would do, dying for our sin and rising again, then proclaimed by the apostles and prophets, and demonstrated to be accurate by the Spirit coming with signs, wonders, and miracles, and distributing gifts to the church, is of greater significance to our eternity. You see, through the prophets in the past, God spoke accurately, proclaiming in word who he was. And through the coming of Jesus, he proclaimed perfectly in his incarnation who he is. And Jesus embodied this. And so what is happening here is we talk about the angels being less than Jesus. We're talking about the message being more significant and in our demand from God to adhere to it, to listen and obey being greater. Jesus tells a parable that I believe is very much connected here in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells a story of a man who was a landowner and master who gave a vineyard to some men and lent it to them and went to a faraway land. Jesus begins telling the story in verse 33. He says, "Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? That's the question. And the crowd immediately responds with this. And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give the fruits in their season. Here's a story. Jesus says this wealthy man created this wonderful vineyard. It was fully prepared. It had a wall and a tower to defend it. And he allowed some men to work it. With the expectation that they would give an accounting for their labors. And that they would respond thanking him. And providing fruit for allowing them to work the vineyard and profit from it. And so when the time for harvest came. He he sent a messenger to speak on behalf of him. And to to receive what he was owed. And they killed him. They beat them. And he sent more and they did the same. And finally, this master says, maybe they don't understand how important this is. Maybe they didn't realize that they spoke for me. So he sends his only son. And desiring to seize the blessing for themselves, these men killed this only son. And everyone who hears the story knows what the master will do. He'll come and He'll show them no mercy because they have rejected His Son. I want you to keep that in mind. I want you to think through what we just read in Hebrews. It says, if the message that was mediated by angels, that the prophets spoke to us, proved to be reliable, and if God demanded an account for that message being responded to, we should pay especially close attention to what his son has said and what his son has done how dare we neglect so great a salvation and before we begin to think that god is somehow harsh in this story, I want you to think through that, that he's offered salvation. That he's sent his son to die for us. And that he's raised him to life. That God has done all that he could do to prove that he is kind and gentle. But if we neglect the work of his son, the simple fact is there will be no mercy. And that at the end of this life, if we have not responded in faith... To Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, we are hopeless. We will share the fate of the men who lent that vineyard from the Master and we will suffer because of our sin. But that will be our choice. It will be our choice to have neglected so great a salvation. So here's what we have in front of us. We have the reality that God died for us. His son came and endured the death that we deserve, paying the penalty for our sin. With the demand that we respond in faith to him, that we believe him, that we trust him. And that if we did, we would be welcomed into his family and into his kingdom with joy everlasting. But that if we refuse to receive God's grace, we would be left to our own devices and God's justice would be exacted upon us. The scriptures are abundantly clear. It's not just this text. One of our favorite verses, if you grew up in church, is John 3.16. I'd like you to to turn there. If you haven't read it before, you're going to see it on a sign at an NFL game this afternoon. I want you to know what it says. And I want you to know what the verses after it say. See, salvation is available to all who will believe. All who will turn from their sin and turn towards Jesus, desiring to be forgiven and redeemed and to walk with God, that that is available to any who will trust Him. But there is a moment when the time runs out. And I would encourage you with this. No matter what it is that has kept you from walking faithfully with Jesus, it is far less than what Jesus offers you. It is far less today and it is far less in eternity. Seek Him while He is patient. While there is yet time. Because I guarantee when you come to the end of your days, you will know The simple truth that Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us this testimony through your son, through the apostles and prophets, through the work of your spirit. That your son loved us so much that he died in our place for our sin and that he rose again. And that in Him, by by a simple act of faith, of of trusting Him, we have forgiveness of our sins and joy eternal at His right hand. And that we have in Him all that we need. That we have joy here and now. And that whatever we've pursued as a way of meaning and satisfaction is far less than what you offer freely to us through faith in Jesus. Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for those who came not believing and for those of us who would believe that we would be reminded again that what we need and long for is found in him and that we would not neglect the salvation that was proclaimed to us by your only son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.